and welcome again to the Karis Podcast. I am here today again with Kim Nielsen and Monty Knutter. Okay, all right. And I'm Katie Tuck. We are in the midst of discussing the book Classical Me, Classical Thee by Rebecca Merkel. So we last time we talked about um, behind the drill Latin, and we're kind of deconstructing different pieces of classical education and talking about breaking those out for each of these chapters. So this time uh, we're talking through chapter five, uh, literature. So um, this is where Merkel talks about, like I said, the drills of classical education. So this is where she compares the goals of education with sports, specifically basketball. So um, we want to train our students to be thoughtful, winsome, wise, critical thinkers who stand for what they believe. Um, but these drills aren't an end in themselves. So we talked a lot about this at length this last time, that these drills separated out won't really do anything for us, but we're working to create this um, person, this human being who is winsome, wise, creative, um, a leader in their community, and so, uh, and whoever God calls them to be. So um, literature is one of these pieces that we get to talk about today, and all three of us are very excited about this. So we'll try to not drone on and on, <laughs> but, um, but we can start uh, maybe talking about what she talks about, like developing skills in literature, lit class, will make you stand out in the crowd. She says, you're being taught to answer the question, what does it mean with what you're reading, which is a fundamentally different question than what does this mean to you? Um, and she talks about how in you know Christian circles in, your, in the church, we're pretty good at doing this. You know, Outside of that, we talk about what does the Bible say about that when you ask you know, a theological or a deep question. Uh, those who are in churches who are, are biblically sound are really asking what does the, what does scripture say? So it I think we have sort of a leg up uh, as Christians on biblical Christians on, you know, how to answer this in literature, but I don't know. What do you all see in that as well? I think studying literature actually in this way can really help us in studying our Bible because mm -hmm. I agree with what you say that that's supposed to be what we're asking first, but I think a lot of times we do tend to ask, what does this mean for me? Sure. First. Sure. And that should be the second or third or fourth question yeah. down the road. First, even reading the Bible or literature, like I have to set aside my own worldview, my own thoughts. And what does this really say? Mm -hmm. um, what is the original intent? Um, what's the author's intent? Um, and when you do that, then by the time you get to, okay, how do I apply this? then it's richer and hopefully closer to truth as well. And so I think that it goes both ways. Studying literature should help us study our Bibles and studying our Bibles should help us do that to literature as well. Uh, yes, I agree. So I would say it's a tool that's like really useful, obviously in our spiritual growth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And if you, if you read it the right way, it, it orients you correctly in, in the world as a person, right? If, if I'm, if I'm reading with, with only this idea of, of what does it mean to me, I'm putting myself in the center of existence, right? As if all of literature and everything else just exists for me, it's just an appendage of me. Uh, but, object, but, but as opposed to looking at it objectively, seeing that it has existence and meaning and value apart from me, and it's something that I can humble myself and try to learn from, gain from. And then, then once that, when I, you know, and then after I understand it, I can apply it. Um, that's just a good posture towards life. That's how I should be treating my neighbor as somebody that has objective meaning and value apart from me. 
that has ideas apart from me that I can learn from and relate to as somebody of inherent dignity and worth. As C.S. Lewis talked about um, how that literature is an extension of your being. And both of you talked a little bit about that too. It's like you take your world and add all these other worlds that you're reading about into it and your world expands. So people don't, people who don't read literature, he says, live in a tiny world. Mm-hmm. You only see your own perspective. Um, you gain experience, for, uh, experience from others in literature. And he said, I become a thousand men, but remain myself. Mm-hmm. He continues, which I love. I have this quote up too. Like the night sky in the Greek poem, I see with a myriad of eyes, but it is still I who see. Here, as in worship, in love, in moral action, and in knowing, I transcend myself and am never more myself than when I do. Hmm. Love that quote. Mm-hmm. I think, was it, is it Aristotle and Plato? You probably, you guys probably know more about this than I do, but he, didn't he talk about how like, so I have this quote down, or maybe it's just a discussion, but that literature, he argued that literature is more philosophical than both history and philosophy. Yeah. So that, yeah, that's, that's, that's interesting. That was something I wanted to talk about. Um, you know, you can think about like ways you, you can teach somebody something or ways you can communicate. You can, you can tell them or you can show them. Right. Mm-hmm. And in literature, we show, mm-hmm. or, you know, we show, we don't, we don't, we don't tell an idea. We show it, we show it embodied. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, how, how should you, you know, deal with the fact that your, your best friend has just died, right? Homer doesn't tell us, he shows us in the person of uh, Achilles, shows us both bad responses and then ultimately a healthy one. How should you deal with um, incredible setbacks and just unending hardships, right? Virgil doesn't tell us that, he shows us that, he embodies that story in, in Aeneas. What does um, unrepented sin look like that we just try to cling, hold to, and justify ourselves, right? Dostoevsky doesn't tell us he shows that in the person of Rizelnikov in, in crime and punishment. And, and so yeah, good literature, this isn't all literature, right? Most, most books are just, I, I don't know, not worth reading. I don't, <laughs> there, there we go. There's something to, to hang on to. Um, or, or, they're, or they're, they're, they're not, oh boy, I, I don't want to go down this, this road, but there's, there's a lot of stuff that it, it's made to there's a lot of books that are made to be engaged almost like a television show or like a fast food meal where you just quickly consume it, you move on. Um, and it's, it's not meant to connect with you in deep ways or to try to share any type of universal theme or to deepen your humanity or anything like that. Uh, but, but great literature, it, it, it discusses the great questions, the things that people have wondered and struggled with for, for centuries. Yeah, I think there's something, again, if the goal is a becoming, there's something that changes in my heart when I read truths in story versus even not that nonfiction is bad, but like reading a nonfiction sentence of like, this is a truth, right? There's something about reading it in a story that touches at least my heart in deeper ways. Mm -hmm. So this story, of course, I'm going to go to Aslan, Mm -hmm. right? It's not that I don't experience Christ in non- fiction, like, hey, here's the truth about Christ. But seeing, experiencing Aslan does something different in Mm -hmm. my heart. Mm -hmm. So my affections towards Christ grow. That's, Mm -hmm. that's the purpose of this, of the story. Right. And so um, it's not that 
Christ is Aslan, you know, like he's more than Aslan. But Mm -hmm. again, it, the story helps not only change my thoughts, but my, my affections Mm -hmm. and who I am. Um, and I think that's the important thing about literature. Yeah, absolutely. It's becoming. I'm, yeah, I'm going to put this in, in kind of a strange way. Um, there are certain things we can do to decrease our inhumanity or to de- decrease our humanity, right? We talk about somebody being inhuman or an action being inhuman. Uh, so think of like, don't think too hard, but like being cruel to an animal, for example. That's, that's not only a sign of your inhumanity. If you engage in that action, it's going to lead you into inhumanity. It's, it's going to make you less human. Mm. There are other things that help you to grow in your humanity, right? In fact, there was a whole field of them. We used to call them the humanities because they helped you become more human. And literature is at the very center of that. This is why, again, this was the, okay. So, so traditionally, right, education was divided between those, those people that um, in, 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 in all sorts of different systems, um, the, there was a handful of people that had to just like, um, or sorry, great majority that just had to like work to survive, right? Think of your peasants, your serfs. And so their education was completely practical. Like, what do I need to do so that I don't starve to death this winter, which, which makes sense. But then there was another group, group of people that didn't have to like just survive. They, they could give themselves to something more than that. And so the core of their education was, right? Poetry, literature, philosophy, theology, things that would help them become more human. And, and we live in an age where this, this once elitist education can be for everybody. I mean, we, we all have to work, but we're not, we're not scraping, you know, the soil, right? Ho- hoping that we can, you know, I don't know, grow enough potatoes or rye or something so that we don't starve to death this, this coming winter. Uh, and, and so that's why, again, like something like a classical school, again, why, why at one point it would have been elitist, but now it can be for, for everybody because we all can benefit from growing in our humanity. I was thinking of our last podcast too, and how we tied the learning of language back to who God is, right? He's a God who speaks and he created by speaking like Mm -hmm. the word, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that literature is the same, right? Like he, how does he reach us? He reaches us with his story. And so, um, and, and I think when you think of scripture too, like there are different genres in scripture and they have different uses, they have different purposes. They have, you know, we, re- we need all of them, history, um, prophecy, we need poetry, we need kind of more of the metaphors. Um, and so there's different genres, but it's all one big story. And I think like there's something in us, again, because we're made in his image that needs story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I had a discussion, um, recently with some, uh, some unbelievers. Um, we were talking deeply about story, um, and they were shocked to find, it was like a huge epiphany that these Greek myths and, and different stories, like older stories are following a pattern. Um, and these are very well-educated individuals, <laughs> but it was like, it was almost like, yes, this is the story God has created, creation, the fall, redemption, and restoration. And that's what they were sort of talking through. But, um, but it, it is really interesting that, like you said, you know, God did this. This is how he created us to, to interact, to be, to work through language and to experience, to, you know, 
use literature to use his word to get at these universal things that he wants to help us to you know become more like him through these things yeah we were just at a preview for a college that's a a liberal arts college, a classical Christian college, basically, and they were saying we study the great books in light of the great book awesome, yeah. um, in order to fulfill the great commission. Hmm. Um, it was Bethlehem Baptist College and Seminary. But I loved that phrase, like, hmm. right, the the great book should point us back to the great story. And it, it always reminds me of that Tolkien Lewis exchange where Lewis is kind of struggling with, you know, he loves myths. He loves fairy stories, but they feel like lies and Tolkien Mm -hmm. points him to like, no, these aren't, I can just look it up. Um, Lewis just said their lies breathed through silver and Tolkien says, they're not completely lies. Rather myths have a kernel of truth within distortions an unworth, unworthy outer husk they often wear. In myths, memory of the unfilled world, memories of paradise and God's original creation. Um, and there's this sense that the gospel is the true myth, the great fairy story. Hmm. Um, and in the gospel of Christ, all the elements of truth in the pagan myths find their fulfillment. Hmm. And this is the point where, where Lewis actually kind of I think his start of his conversion where he starts seeing this great and falls in love. He's already loved this, this story. Mm -hmm. And he realized that it's true in Christ and Mm -hmm. that it's fulfilled in Christ. And then you see him doing that with his, his own writing and stories. Um, But I just, I love that, that in literature, we get pointed back to the true story, the true um, fulfillment, Mm -hmm. I guess, of all of the stories. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's it's worth noting that if if you were to study uh, literature in in many places, this isn't the take you would get. And I, I don't even mean the gospel take, but even just the idea that there's an objective meaning within a book. Right. Um, I'm, I'm thinking of somebody like Jacques Derrida, right? In the this schools of deconstruction and, and postmodernism, um, you know, where the, the the approach to literature is right. I, I'm going to misquote the proverb, but it's something like a poem doesn't say it just is. Mm-hmm. Right, where every act of reading isn't an act of interpretation, it's an act of creation mm-hmm. um, because there's no inherent meaning in anything. And so you come, you read it subjectively, whatever it means to you, that is what it means, period. And it can have multiple different meanings. Uh, that's, that's arguably the dominant school of literature right now. Um, that any type of claim for truth or objective meaning is really just... Uh, a way to hide some kind of oppression in some way, shape, or form. It's really a it's really a hidden claim for power. And so, what we need to do is deconstruct all truth claims so that we can liberate people from from oppression. And that's um, I don't know. I, I mean, I can't think of a worse philosophy. Right. Yeah. It's and just, you wonder it's, how it's many terrible. you wonder how many authors actually like that <laughs> you know like you would do that to other books but like not mine right i i had a purpose in mind or whatever um but yeah that's the mo- postmodern. it is yeah. there is no truth it's just your own truth you create your own truth yep that's so true it is pervasive isn't it huh so what do you think that does monty well Instead of increasing someone's humanity, I think it decreases it would be the, the, the short of it because it, it makes the world smaller, mm-hmm. right? Um, 
you know, God, right. You've, you've heard of it, you know, I don't know that the metaphor that pastors, you know, used to use a lot, like you have a God shaped hole in your heart, right? If you try to fill it with yourself, your life is going to be very empty, like very fast. Like Mm. the self is a lot less interesting than, I mean, cheapers, even if you're an atheist and you read great literature, that's something. Yeah. Um, uh, but if you're an atheist and you're just looking to yourself and your interpretation of the world and what you make of the world, um, I, I mean, I, you're, you're literally, you don't even need to wait to, to die. You're going to create a hell on earth. You're going to construct that for yourself. And if you look at how, how a lot of these like leading and, you know, deconstructionist thinkers lived their lives, it was, you know, I would, I wouldn't want to trade places with them, you know, right. Uh, yeah. they, they were, they were failed. I mean, they were clearly failed human beings. Yeah, I mean, I think it is part of the increased anxiety and despair mm-hmm. in our world because mm-hmm. it's like, there's no, right? I'm, I'm tossed to and fro all the time. Like what I think, what I feel changes, um, you know, year to year, day to day, moment to moment. And so you're always tossed to and fro and there's nothing steadfast or nothing. If there's no truth other than what's in myself, like eventually I know I, there is nothing nothing in myself then, you know, and I think it leads to anxiety and despair. Either I can't find it. Um, and so you're anxious and you're constantly feeling like you're never enough. You're never going to measure up enough. I can't find that truth Mm -hmm. or I don't understand, or I guess it could also lead to immense pride thinking that you are the center. Mm -hmm. And so anybody who differs from you, like, right? It's hard to hold. It's really, you cannot hold the view that your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth. Um, you can't hold that for very long. It, it just doesn't measure up, I think. Um, no, I, I totally agree. It's, it's hard to make your way across any literature or any other worldviews and make sense of any of it without having an anchor in Christ, in truth with a capital T. And there's only one truth with a capital T. It's like coming back to reality. Um, I feel a little bit like this sometimes when I am away from church for a few weeks, it's like almost like coming back, you know, to, uh, to church when I'm gathering with my, the community or with other believers, it's like, oh, this is true. This is actual reality because we're gathered around the truth, capital T. And it's with literature too, as you're, as you're making your way through, you see you know, those who are working their way through their humanity, but we, we have truth, um, that we can anchor all of, all of these things in. And, uh, I can see why it becomes, why you become cynical, right. With that, with that, when you're looking at everything through that lens, because it does become all about like power or, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, it, then it's a power differential, mm-hmm. um, because if there's not a capital, truth or if I'm not looking at it in or looking for it in everything um then it just becomes well whose view wins out whoever is most powerful um and there's not a lot of beauty or hope in that yeah sure well why do we read good literature we'll just quote aristotle because literature is going at universal things, beauty, love, and justice through particular stories. Okay, I'm going to quote C.S. Lewis oh, again, right. of oh, course. Right. <laughs> literature adds to reality. It does not simply describe it. 
It enriches the necessary competencies that daily life requires and provides. And in this respect, it irrigates the deserts that our lives have already become. The abolition of man. It's funny. I don't even know where it came it's from. Like I it. just <laughs> have the quote. That's I should good. have done where it came, came from, but I didn't. That's good. Do you want to throw a quote at us, Monty? <laughs> well, I won't throw a quote at you. I mean, I'll paraphrase uh, Peter Kraft here. He said this. Okay. I'm getting this from him. There's only two things that, that never get boring to us, a person and a story, mm-hmm. right? You never, you never are with a person you love and you feel, boy, I finally exhausted this person. There's nothing else new to them, right? Um, right? Because a person bears God's image. And so there, there's something infinite in them. And so you never get tired of a person. Um, and because we're sub-creators like God, we create stories. And you never get tired of a good book. You never get tired of a good story. It's, it's, it's just hardwired into our humanity to love a good story, to see ourselves into to stories, to understand their world in terms of, of stories. Uh, and so it's a joy. It's pleasurable. I mean, like reading a good book is a joy. It should be, yeah. at least. If you're I, reading a good book and you're not enjoying it, you need to rethink your approach to books. There you go. That's a great place to end. Um, and I would actually ask, can I make a specific request for a recommendation? Mm-hmm. If somebody says, what is your favorite book? I know this is a really hard one, but like if the one that you keep going back to over and over when it comes to literature, it, what comes to your mind? What's the first book that comes to your mind? I had about 10 that came to my mind, so yeah. I don't know. I'm trying to sit. Okay. Um, I, I would give one that I haven't give given before I will give one that's not a C.S. Lewis one um Les Mis Les Mis I feel like by Victor Hugo um encompasses so much of of life and um I feel like I learned so much through that book of like it's gives you a glimpse of kind of history but then also just what you were saying like humanity I feel like it's such a great picture of humanity of God's overall story there's redemption in there um it's a really beautifully written um piece of work hmm. yeah so um i'll give you one of one of my favorites like it's just because it's what i'm reading right now uh that, that it comes to mind uh anna karenina mm. and you know i read that book when i was oh, i don't know probably 22 for the first time and i thought it was good but now right after having been married now i've been married 16 years just seeing how he kind of probes into what makes a successful marriage, what makes one unsuccessful. He had, I mean, like he's, he's so clever in all the different things he's doing and, uh, you know, trying to show, oh, oh boy. I mean, like what looks like it's going to produce happiness, how it, how it doesn't, how it alienates a person, how, like, if you try to connect with a person and love outside the confines of marriage, you actually separate yourself from, from that person ultimately and from humanity. It's, it's so, it's, it's, it's very deep and very insightful. Uh, and, and so if you read that when you were younger, I'd encourage you to go back to it if you, you know, if you're listening to this as, a, as an adult, um, uh, because after having lived through marriage for, for some, some years, you'll get a lot more out of it than you did if you read it when you were younger. I knew you were going to say a Russian novel, but that's good. <laughs> that's good. Um, I would say mine is not as cerebral as you guys, but Pride and Prejudice is one that I always go back to. It's my absolute tip top favorite for so many reasons. And it changes all the time, but um, my reasons change all the time, I should say. But 
I would say my husband just read it a few years ago for the first time because I would read it multiple times. Like usually every year I try to read it. Mm-hmm. And he was, I remember him reading it next to me. He's like, oh my goodness, these sisters are terrible. And they're just, he just delighted in it too. It was so fun. He just read it again for the second time. But after he was done reading it, he went in my phone and changed his name to Mr. Darcy. So I couldn't find him. And then I realized I was calling him. So um, anyways, it's just been sort of a fun family. And then my son, who's a freshman now, he had to read it what, last year, year before. Mm-hmm. And he really enjoyed it too. Um, even though he didn't really want to admit it, I think because his dad enjoyed it, he felt okay saying that he liked it. But I would say that's one of my favorites for, for multiple reasons. But yes. Okay. Funny quick side canada note. Right. Yeah. My wife also has a nickname for me based off of a character from Jane Austen. Sir Walter Elliot, if you've read Persuasion. Yeah. Aging. Oh. <laughs> She's in nine. the background nine right yeah. now. Yes. Yeah. I was not what I was expecting. No, nor yeah. was I. No. Uh-uh. <laughs> Thanks for that, Brenda. <laughs> oh my goodness. Funny. Well, thank you so much uh, for joining us today. Thanks for joining our podcast. We'll see you next time for the next Behind the Drill, which I can't remember right now. It is logic. Logic. Logic Okay. Okay. Good. Thanks. All right. Well, thanks so much. Have a good one. Bye. Bye.